Now the first four verses of chapter 10 end with this very worrisome statement. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. This is a plain statement of the complete inability of animal sacrifices to pay the redemption price for men's guilt. Oh, they sufficed for certain things, but they cannot be the ransom for men's death sentence. They are incapable of being that. It's not just that they don't. It is impossible for them to do that. Well, then there's a problem. What's going to be done about man's guilt? Will everyone perish? Well, verse 5 informs us that God has a solution. He has a plan. And so the verse begins, consequently. Because God recognized this problem, verses 1 to 4, as a result of this need, God acts. What does he do? He sends Christ into the world. Jesus Christ is God's solution to the problem of human guilt. And in verses 5 to 10, we are told precisely how Christ meets this need through an exposition of Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. Now, I've divided verses uh, 5 to uh, 10 into three parts. First, and we'll, we'll spend almost all of our time on this. First, we'll look at the quotation from Psalm 40. That's verses 5 to 7. Then we'll look at the explanation of the quotation in verses 8 and 9. And then we'll see the results. They're summarized in verse 10 and expanded in verses 11 to 18. Right? So we've got the quotation, we've got the explanation, we've got the result or the benefit. First, and again, this will be almost the vast majority of the sermon, so don't get too worried if, it, if we're still in the first point a long time from now. First, the quotation. We need to immediately ask the question when we look at verses 5b through 7, who is speaking? Who is speaking? Because if we were to read Psalm 40, as it was originally given, as a product of the Holy Spirit in David, we would know that the answer to the question is, well, it's David, David who's speaking. Right? If you go to the Psalm right before verse 1, it says, this is a Psalm of David. But here, verse 5 says that Christ is speaking these words from that Davidic psalm. So yes, they were truly David's experience and David's words. But they were also given for David's greater son to claim and to speak a thousand years after him. Notice in these verses 
how Christ is clearly and repeatedly said to be the speaker of this quotation. Verse 5 says, When Christ came into the world, he said, and here's the quote. In verse 8, when he said above, and then he quotes half of the verse, and then in verse 9, uh, then he added, and he quotes the rest of the verses. Right? So these verses, all of these verses, these verses in their entirety, are spoken by Jesus. Jesus spoke these words, not through David in times past, although there might be some sense in which that's true, but according to verse 5, Jesus spoke these words after his incarnation. When Christ came into the world, he said. He spoke these words, in other words, as a human being. He recognized that these verses were ultimately for him, and so he spoke them about himself. You know, the fact that we don't recognize Christ and his work, the mission, and all of the, the, the wonderful richness uh, that's found in the, in the Bible about him doesn't mean Jesus didn't. Right? Jesus understood who he was. Jesus understood that animal sacrifices couldn't ransom men. And he also understood that he was sent into the world to solve that problem. Jesus knew his messianic mission. Jesus was self-aware. He didn't think as a little boy growing up that he was just like all the other little boys in his day. Even by the young age of 12, he knew he had to be about his father's business in the temple. I don't really think, I don't know this on biblical grounds, but I doubt he was surrounded by a whole bunch of other 10 to 14 year old boys and girls. He had a peculiar mission. He understood it. He lived it. He did it. Yes, he grew in wisdom and understanding, as the end of Luke 2 teaches us. And part of that growing would have been a deepening awareness of what God, his father, had called him to do as the Messiah. So at some point, at conception, I don't think so, at 12, apparently he already could have said this at 12, certainly he could have later, at some point he could say, sacrifices and offerings you have not willed. You have not desired. You prepared a body for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you don't take pleasure. So what I said then was, I will come and do your will, O Father. Because it's been written of me in the Old Covenant Scriptures. Jesus' statement, not David's, that's a separate study. Jesus' statement tells us three things about his work. 
First, he knew his messianic mission was foretold in the Old Testament. That's what he says right at the end, right? It's written of me in the scroll of the book. It was written by and about David and others, yes, but it all ultimately pointed to him. That's the first thing. He knew his messianic mission was found in the Old Testament. And all those who have eyes to see can still see it there today as well. Secondly, he knew that he was God and that a human body had been prepared for him. You see, he was aware that he had a divine nature joined to a true human body and soul. And thirdly, we know from these verses that he knew it was his mission to obey God. His mission was to do the will of God. Somehow, in some way, the answer to the inadequate old covenant sacrifices was for Jesus, the Messiah, to do the will of God. Now, these three things, they, they tell us something. First and foremost, I think that all of this was planned by God. All of this was planned by God. If Jesus, living about 0 AD, well, there was no 0, 1 AD, right? We went from 1 BC to 1 AD, no 0. Jesus was written about in the Old Testament hundreds of years before he was conceived in the womb of Mary. That points to a plan, right? If, if this is the book of God, and it tells us that Jesus is coming and he came, there must have been a plan. Next, a body was prepared for him. In other words, it was readied according to a plan. He was to fulfill the will of God. All of that points to a plan. That's what the will of God is. It's a plan. It's a course of duty. It's a way. He was to fulfill the will of God. Of course, we believe from Scripture that everything that occurs happens because it's rooted in the plan of God. Amen. Ephesians 1.11 tells us that God works all things according to the counsel of his will because he predestined it all. And in that same chapter, this decree this counsel of his will is also called the purpose of his will and the word I'll be using most of all, a plan. And so what we have in these verses is a prophesied, embodied obedience by Jesus Christ. That's what these verses talk about. That's what Jesus recognized as this was about him and he quoted it, this is a prophesied embodied obedience by Jesus Christ. Why? As the solution to men's sin problem. And this is no exception. This is part of the decree. 
This is part of God's will. This is part of God's plan. This is his eternal counsel. This part of the decree, and historically the church has has taken parts of the great master plan and given names to certain pieces of it, really just to more easily identify them. And this part of the decree has historically been called what the men learned about yesterday, the covenant of redemption. That's the name given to God's plan that each person of the Trinity would work in a specific way to secure the salvation of the elect, to take care of this forgiveness problem that animals couldn't do anything about. So the covenant of redemption is the name given to God's plan where each person of the Trinity works in a specific way to secure the salvation of the elect. And it's called the covenant of redemption as opposed to some other name simply because the details of this arrangement as they're told to us in the scriptures, in the book of the scroll, are explained to us in covenant imagery. You don't have to call it this. You can call it something else. But whatever you call it, recognize this is found in scripture. It's rooted in the decree of God and it's God's plan for how all of this would work. You may recall a few weeks ago when uh, we began to study the new covenant in some detail. I told you that there are seven major covenants in the Bible between God and men or from God to men. Well, these are the Adamic covenant, right? Made with all men forever through Adam. We usually call that the covenant of works. That's the one every man who's born into the world today is under. That's why he's condemned. He doesn't get condemned by his sin. He's condemned, according to John 3, already. You come into the world that way. Why? Because you're in covenant under Adam and Adam failed and the penalty for failure is death. So you come in dead, spiritually dead and dying under a penalty. The next covenant was the Noahic, where some of the parts of the Adamic or covenant of works um, are reestablished so there can be a, a, a stable environment for the coming of a savior. Then, of course, there's the Abrahamic, Mosaic, and Davidic, which begin to form very publicly the people of God and point to the fulfillment, the ultimate Israel, Jesus himself. And then, of course, we're finding in this book, this seventh covenant, the new covenant. But I've just listed six, so why did I say the new was the seventh? Well, because logically, there's a covenant, not in time and space, but in the eternal decree of God, in God himself. Again, we call this the covenant of redemption that undergirds the new. And so we usually teach about it. If we were teaching systematically, we would teach about it before the new covenant. But because we're preaching expositionally, We're just now getting to data about the covenant of redemption in these verses. So we've talked about the new covenant. There's something underneath it. 
Like, why was there a new covenant? How did that work out? Well, it's all rooted in God's plan, in God's decree, on his eternal purpose to save the elect. And that part of the purpose we call the covenant of redemption. This is a covenant before time made in the eternal council of the Trinity and it's the foundation for salvation. It's summarized in these words in Psalm 40 as Christ quotes them. It involves preparing a body for the divine son so that he could come and do the will of the divine father by the help of the divine spirit. And all of this is explained, frequently actually, in the Old Testament. As I said a moment ago, in God's providence, yesterday, our men's study was on this very subject. So for about a dozen of you, you're gonna have to hear a little repetition. But for most of you, I'm sure it will be new and so, um, too bad. In 2 Timothy 1.9, Paul teaches that salvation is the result of a purpose decided before the ages began. In Titus 1.2, Paul says that eternal life was promised before the ages began. This purpose, this promise, this part of God's eternal decree of salvation is explained to us in the Bible in covenantal language. Again, this is why we call it the covenant of redemption. And all three of the triune persons engaged with one another in this covenant. God the Father planned, the Son accomplished, and the Spirit enabled. This is seen numerous times in what are called the servant songs of Isaiah. Perhaps the plainest one was one that we read yesterday. Two things before I read this passage. You know this passage. It's quoted in the New Testament. Jesus reads this in the synagogue and says, oh, that's me. We'll talk about that in a moment. But two things before we get into it. First, listen for the Trinity. Listen for the Trinity. You will easily find them. Just because God didn't teach about it plainly in the Old Testament didn't mean God didn't exist as Trinity in the Old Testament, right? God is God. He's always been triune. And so there are lots of places in the Old Testament where we find these hints. Well, this is one of them, right? So that's the first one. The second thing that you need to uh, think about is who's speaking? Who's talking? We've already run into this, right? It, wait, wait, is David, is David speaking? Oh, no, wait, no, wait, it says Jesus is speaking. Oh, okay. Well, same thing here as we listen to the first seven verses of uh, Isaiah 42. We need to ask the question, who's speaking? That will be true on some of the other verses or texts that I reference. We won't read them all. There are many, many texts that talk about this. Um, but listen to that. That's called, if you want, if you want a, a nice, big, new, fat theological term, here's a, here's a good term for you. This is called 
prosopological interpretation. That's a great word, prosopological. Prosopone was in Greek theater was a mask that actors would put on because they didn't have 50 actors for 50 parts. They had two or three. They were always male and they would wear a mask. They would wear a prosopone. They would put it on and that way the audience could know who was speaking. Well, Jesus Christ in the New Testament interprets the Old Testament by asking the question, who is speaking? He does prosopological interpretation. The writer to the Hebrews is doing it right now. Paul does it. Remember when Jesus said um, to the Pharisees to try to stump them, uh, who's, who's my Lord? Who, who's, who's talking? Who, is David talking? That doesn't make any sense. And even the Pharisees recognize it doesn't make sense if David, wait a minute, that can't be David because if it's David's Lord, but God is, how? that's Jesus in Psalm 110. That's Jesus, right? We need to ask the question, who's speaking? So who's speaking? So think about those two things. Listen for the triune God. Listen for Who's speaking? Isaiah 42, 1 to 7. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. We could really stop right there. It's kind of already done, right? There's God the Father speaking. There's God the Son, who's the, the, the servant. There's uh, the spirit who is put upon the son so that the son will be upheld. So that the task God gives him to do, he will fully accomplish. He'll actually bring righteousness. He'll bring justice. Something the animal sacrifices could never do. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. He came gentle. He came gently. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord. Here's the answer to the question who's been speaking. Who created the heavens and stretched them out and spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you, singular, in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant to the people. Now, what person has God the Father made? and supported and given, it, given as a covenant to his people. One and one only, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the servant of God. So this is God the Father talking to God the Son. What, why are you doing this? Verse seven, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. Did you find the Trinity? These verses describe the servant of Jehovah, that is Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah. It then describes 
the spirit of Jehovah. That's the Holy Spirit. And there is Jehovah, the Lord himself. The Lord, God, the father laid this plan and he called his son to it. He promised to give him as a covenant for the people to bring salvation. So you see, this covenant of redemption isn't the new covenant. It's the plan in God to birth the new covenant. So it's, it's separate. The son would not fail because the father promised to uphold him by putting his spirit upon him. And other parallel texts, and there are so many if you have a reference Bible of any kind, would be places like Isaiah 49, verses 8 and 9. Or from a different perspective, Isaiah 50, verses 4 to 9, where it's not the father who's speaking, but it's the servant who's agreeing to do his father's will. He's accepting this responsibility. He's saying, yes, I'll, I'll complete that plan. So in this covenant of redemption, the son is given a mission. He's a servant. So what does he do? He must do the will of his father. He must obey God. So first, he had to become incarnate. As our text says, a body was prepared. Why? Because if he is going to be a solution to men's sin problem, he must die. And lest you forget, God cannot die. It's not that God doesn't die. God cannot die. God cannot die and pay for your sins. The God-man can die and pay for your sins. That's the genius of God's plan. Only a human can pay for another human sin. So God the Son had to take on true humanity. So this is the first commitment that this servant has to agree to. Yes, yes, I'll leave the glories of heaven and I'll take on humanity. I'll take on, Philippians 2, the form of a servant. I'll lower myself and obey you, Father. Then he had to obey the law perfectly and offer himself as a sacrifice for God's people. John 10, verses 17 and 18 say in part, I lay down my life. Well, why do you do that, Jesus? Was this your idea? He says, I received this charge from my father. This will, this duty, God the Father gave to me. Much more could be said about the servant's work as prophet, priest, and king. But I just want to introduce the basics of this covenant to you as it's related to our text in Hebrews. Other verses helpful in this study are, are ones that we found in Hebrews, such as Psalm 110, uh, Psalm 2, Isaiah 61, which is another servant song. So it's, a, it's another um, poem about... Uh, the coming Messiah. And many places in the Gospel of John talk about this. So the covenant of redemption, this, this plan in the Godhead in eternity past, is a covenant of works. 
In other words, the servant has a job to do. He has to fulfill it in order for salvation to come to God's people. That was Jesus' work. He had to be willing to take on a body and to fully do the will of God. Now, what was the father's job? Well, he committed to help the son so that he would succeed. Isaiah 42, 6, Isaiah 49, 8, Isaiah 50, verses 7 and 9, all speak of God helping, infallibly helping his son, his servant. How did he help him? Well, there are many descriptions, but fundamentally, he helped him by pouring out upon him the Holy Spirit without measure. Think about it. Who prepared the body for the son? Who did that? The the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary. He did it perfectly. So So God the son could take up true but perfect humanity. How did Jesus learn of his mission as he grew up? How did he learn who he was, what to say, what the gospel was? Well, according to John 3, all of this came from the Holy Spirit. Even in his death, how was he able to perfectly die? Well, we just studied in Hebrews 9.14. He did it through the eternal spirit. Jesus, the God-man, needed the fullness of God the Father's help in the person of God the Spirit in order to fulfill his duties. But that's what God committed in this covenant. God says, if you'll do, God the Father says, if you'll do this for me, I'll do this for you to make sure it happens. So the entire mission of the Son is empowered and secured by God the Spirit. All of this is planned in eternity. Of course, it's worked out in time and space. When what? When the sun came in to the world. Verse 5. When the sun came in to the world. And then the Holy Spirit takes the salvation earned by Christ. And as the elect are born... He renews them, and they are called, and they believe, and they're united to Christ, and salvation, real, actual salvation, not the picture of salvation, of the animal sacrifices, the real salvation through the blood of a worthy human substitute, Jesus Christ, comes into their experience. This is what Christ is saying when he quotes Psalm 40, that based on the eternal plan of God, he would take a body and do the will of God. What was that will? Well, it certainly included obeying all the old covenant laws, because remember, according to Galatians 4.4, he was born under the law. Every morality from God in the scriptures, Jesus kept. But he also obeyed the commitments of the covenant of redemption. 
The, the things that made him as the Messiah unique, special, that applied to him and don't apply to anyone else. All of those special obligations and duties. So he had to fulfill all of the kingly, priestly, prophetic uh, duties. And then he had to die as an offering, a sin offering for the elect. And because he fully obeyed in all of these things, because he was perfect, remember? Hebrews 2.10, then all the promises of the covenant come true. Not only for him, glory and honor, the reward that was set before him, but salvation comes to us. You say, Pastor Ron, you seem to be getting an awful lot out of a couple of Old Testament verses that I, I don't think I would have seen that. Well, me either. That's why we have to learn from the inspired apostles on how to understand our Old Testament from the new. Right? I, and when you start seeing not the one or two, but the many, many, many places where this summary is expanded back in the old, you can say, wow, it really was written of him in the scroll of the book. It is really there. Yeah, <laughs> of course it is. God says so right there. It's that simple. It's that plain. Well, how do we know? Point two, very quickly, the explanation. This is found in verses eight and nine. In verse 8, the preacher rearranges the psalm, right? He takes the first part and the third part. He puts those two together because they, they make the same point. And then he takes the second line and the fourth line, and he puts those two things together. So he makes the following two points. Animal sacrifices aren't pleasing to God as, clen as the cleansing agent for human sin. Ineffective. And secondly... Christ came to do God's will. He came in a human body to do God's will. But then notice his conclusion. He's just summarized these verses from Psalm 40. Now here's what it means. It means that a seismic shift in the outworking of God's plan has taken place. Here's what he says. The first is done away so that the second can be established. In other words, the law of the old covenant is removed so that the work of Jesus Christ in the new covenant can be put in its place. So instead of an inability to save, suddenly God will put into place salvation for all his people for all time. You see, Psalm 40 looked forward to a time when the obedience of Jesus Christ would solve the problem of the inadequacy of animal sacrifice. And that time came when Jesus came into the world and did the will of God. So, the end of verse 9 uh, says, yep, yeah, we, we, we got it right. <laughs> All of this background is to establish the new covenant, to establish a way for sins to really be forgiven. And that's what verse 10 
is about, here's point three, the result or the benefit. The benefit is this, because Jesus kept the will of God, we have been sanctified. We have been sanctified. By Jesus' righteous life, by his sacrificial death, we have now been set apart to God. We no longer belong to the Father, our, our Father the devil. We don't even belong to ourselves. We are now, praise his name, God's. Now this sanctification in this verse is not the progressive improvement in our character that comes with salvation. That's actually found down in verse 14 and following. But this sanctification simply means we are set apart to God. We belong to God. We've begun to experience the life of God. We've left our place in Adam's covenant and we're now in Christ's covenant. We're now under the blood. We're now safe. And verses 11 to 18 expand on this and repeat a number of themes that we've already encountered. And again, I'm just going to summarize these in a few sentences. First, this obedience of Christ in his self-sacrificial offering was perfect, unrepeatable, and rewarded with a heavenly seating in the place of God's favor. And again, we've seen those themes multiple times already in this section of the book of Hebrews. The obedience of Christ was perfect, unrepeatable, and rewarded. Secondly, Christ's obedient life and sacrificial death earned for us sanctification, verses 14 to 16. His work completely secured our salvation. And as we live it out, it's being measured out to us in grace. Grace upon grace. We are being sanctified, the end of verse 14. His law is internalized, verses 15 and 16. It's even loved and lived out. Not, not perfectly yet, but it's within us. We love it. We want to do it. And we live it out. And thirdly and finally in these verses, Christ's obedient life and sacrificial death earn our justification, verse 17. Our sins are forgotten, they're forgiven, they're gone. The lawless deeds aren't remembered anymore. This is in utter contrast to where the animal sacrifices left us. They still left us in our sins. So our sins are no more. The guilt of our sins is no more. And we become, in the eyes of God, as righteous as this one, our substitute. And so all sin offerings are done. Verse 18, it's all done. This is the end of God's plan. All the problems are solved. Oh, it's not all applied yet, but all the problems are solved. Christ has earned everything necessary. And so no more offerings are needed. No more sacrifices should be done. So that's Hebrews 10, 1 to 18. But especially Psalm 40. Three uses. First, remember that the Old Testament is God's word. 
The New Testament's God's word, yes. So is the Old Testament. It's still your Bible. Admittedly, it doesn't in every place apply to you in the same way that the New Testament scriptures do. But you need it. It's still your Bible. Christ is there. Why? It's so still God's word and Christ is still so there. You, you could actually read, oh, I don't know, Isaiah 53, if you're in a chariot going from Jerusalem to um, Ethiopia and God could open your mind and you could be saved with the help of a preacher. You could actually be saved from Isaiah 53. Well, of course you can. It's the Bible. It's still God's word. Christ is still there. The Holy Spirit is still speaking. That's what this whole book of Hebrews is. It's preaching from about a half a dozen Old Testament texts. That's what we've done today. I've preached you the gospel from Psalm 40. The gospel's in the Old Testament. And the Holy Spirit doesn't say, oh, that's secondary, that's not my... No. Verse 15. The Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. Quoting the Old Testament. Then he adds, verse 17... He's still speaking. The Holy Spirit still speaks from the Old Testament. Secondly, the New Testament fulfills the Old. Now you all know that, I hope. But here is just another rich example that proves that Christ is the culmination of all of the Old Testament, indeed all of history. David isn't ultimate. Take that to your eschatology. David isn't the end goal of Psalm 40. Jesus is. So David isn't coming back someday to really fulfill Psalm 40. It's been fulfilled by the perfect one to establish a perfect covenant that actually gives salvation. We're not saying that everything that's prophesied in the Old Testament has occurred in history yet. But we're saying whatever is left is all in Christ not in something else or someone else. You need to learn the basic relationship between the Old and New Testaments. The New Covenant was planned and even disclosed in the Old Testament. When Christ came, he recognized that, taught that, lived his life in accordance with it, and fulfilled that plan. So that means that the church age is not a fallback plan. It's not a temporary interruption in God's real plan for Israel. You are Israel. God's real spiritual Israel. You're not a parenthesis. The old covenant is not in any way, shape, or form coming back. Period. To do so denigrates the perfection of Jesus Christ. Amen. That's inescapable, it seems to me. 
Verse 10, he has done away with the first to establish the second. Why would we want to go back to something that didn't take away sins? Why would we want to go back to the, the shadow, the imperfect? We have the reality. We have the body, Christ, Colossians 1 and 2. Well, finally, a third use. Do you appreciate better now all that God has done to save you? Some of you know the work of Jesus Christ well. Good. You know what he had to do, and how he had to live, how he had to die, rise, and that's good. But do you understand that there's a whole plan behind that? That your salvation isn't the work of Jesus. It's the work of the triune God in Jesus. Right? This is why we don't worship Jesus alone. Certainly not just the man alone, Jesus. We worship the Trinity. The, the God who covenanted within himself to bring salvation to you and me. God personally committed in eternity past to save you. He worked it out over thousands of years and he made that salvation sure and certain not only by his own promise, but by his own power in himself in Christ. In other words, God in Christ earned the salvation for you. You couldn't. So that now all you must do is believe. You must say, I see the beauty of this. I see the ugliness of my own sin. I, I want Jesus. I need Jesus. Yes, that's salvation. You don't have to be good enough to come to Jesus. You can't be good enough. He was good enough. All you must do is take him in your place. He is your substitute. You see, when you were helpless, God was almighty. He upheld the law in Christ and he paid your debt in his death. You had, you have, some of you still, a bad record and a bad heart. God solves both problems. Justification, he removes your bad record. He puts Christ's perfect righteousness on that record. Suddenly, you don't have a bad record anymore if you're saved. You have a perfect record. You have fulfilled every law that God ever wrote down for men. Yeah, but, but what about the guilt of my sin? All the terrible things I did. Christ took care of that too. He paid that debt. He earned all the graces necessary for you to be made alive and changed, for you to be set apart to God, to be sanctified, to be washed, to be cleaned, to be forgiven. Animals couldn't help that. Christ is the complete solution in his life and his death. If you need him, and we all need him, Believe on him, and he will save you. No one ever came to Christ. For Christ, as Christ, and was turned away. If you understand your need for him, go to him. You don't need to walk an aisle. You, you don't need to talk to a pastor or a friend, although you're welcome to. You need to talk to God. 
You need to pray. You need to go to him and say, show me my need. Show me Jesus Christ. I, I, I sense I need him. Go to the word. Ask for the spirit. Be saved. <laughs> While salvation is still available. Let's pray.